Welcome, one and all, to the Death-Defying Human Flycast. My name is Max Romero, and I'll be your host on this one-of-a-kind journey into the world of the superhero stuntman called the Human Fly, the wildest superhero ever, because he was real. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, that tower of power, the man of the hour, fire and water founder, Siskoid. Hey, Siskoid, how are you? Uh, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I, 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 it's always strange when someone calls me a founder. I know I was there from the beginning, but I, <laughs> I wasn't from the beginning. You know, I was like the fifth member. <laughs> <laughs> you're, like the, you're like the fifth Beatle. Yeah. And, you know, they had to recruit me from uh, overseas, well, not overseas, but uh, over border, anyways, <laughs> over land. Uh, yeah. So we are here to talk about uh, the human fly number five, Fire in the Night. And Sisko, I, I consider you something of a, of a comic book historian. You know a lot about a lot of different eras of comics, and you you've written about them, you've podcasted about them, obviously. So, what, if any, was your experience with the Human Fly? Yeah, well, I, the seventies are actually a, a big blind spot for me in terms of cinema, television, uh, comic books. Uh, the seventies the are kind of my weakest decade, hmm. uh, and I'm including every decade since, um, let's say, the thirties. Okay, so uh, <laughs> so I don't know what happened. I guess this is the decade where I was growing up when I was a you know my childhood. Mm-hmm. So your culture is your you know your pop culture is kind of very focused, and of course it was very French for me at mm-hmm. that point. So I'd heard of the Human Fly. I might even have seen an issue in a friend's collection when I was a kid, but the series was well over before I started buying American comics. Uh, mm-hmm. So I've been aware of him, knew he was a licensed property based on a real guy. Uh, but that's about it until I started listening to your show, basically. Uh, so my main interest is that it is written by Bill Mantlo, who I consider in many ways Marvel's Bob Haney. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he brings a, a sort of anything goes spirit to his superhero stuff. Uh, and I did a deep dive of Rom Space Night on my blog some years ago. Uh, so your own deep dive into something. Uh, you know, it's something similar, I guess, similar. Yeah. Similar. Sure. Um, it's some, yeah. I've been, it's something I've been enjoying for, you know, for similar reasons. Oh, okay. Well, great. Thank you. Now that you're becoming more familiar with the human fly. And by the way, you, <laughs> by just knowing who he is and knowing a little bit about him, you are miles ahead of most people. So now that you are familiarizing yourself a little bit more with the character, what, what do you think? Uh, well, I'm, I, you know, I have, um, I have a fondness for the idea of, you know, I like like superheroics that aren't about straight out superheroes. Uh, like recently I've been reading uh, Mr. Miracle source of freedom, hmm. uh, which is, I'll say an apparent heir to this series because it's about a daredevil who only inadvertently gets into superheroics. He's surrounded by a team of, you know, he's got an agent and such, and he's desperate to keep his identity secret. Uh 
like Shiloh Norman is the Mr. Miracle at the present day, not Scott Free. And Shiloh's doing it because he does, really doesn't want to deal with America's racial divide. And I think he's going to learn lessons about identity through the series, basically, mm-hmm. uh, and, and make kind of a, a, a 180 on that, probably. But, uh, but I get big human fly vibes from it. Um, it kind of lets you imagine what human fly would be like if they did it today in the internet era mm-hmm. uh, with social media and all of that, you know, and, and, but it's similar. He's making these sorts of, uh, I say similar, not necessarily similar to the comic as much as similar to the, the real person, uh, you know, making appearances on talk shows and, and that kind of stuff and kind of playing the celebrity angle of it. So I like that whole concept of a guy in a costume, he's doing good things, but he, he would not, you know, call himself a superhero. He, he's not policing. He's not crime fighting necessarily. And he just sort of stumbles into that because right. uh, wrong place, wrong time, you know, or right place, right time for the people that he helps. <laughs> that is one of the things I find really interesting about this character is that in the 19 issue run, he never, ever calls himself a, a superhero. Uh, he doesn't even call himself a hero, to be honest. And like you said, he's kind of uh, I hate to use the word victim, but he's kind of a victim of circumstances. <laughs> he just, like you said, he just happens to be around when these these things are happening and through his own kind of uh, morality, I guess, and his sense of duty to his community, he throws himself in there because he figures that he has the best chance of pulling off whatever daring do is is required of him. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that that's that's one of the most enduring things about this character in the series to me is that he is just some dude in a mask. And in the 70s, uh, I say it's my weakest decade because I've read the fewest comics from there. And, and some some of these concepts are more, uh, you know, more outside of my purview. But the 70s as a whole is, uh, you know, like kind of uh, the, the superheroes are on the wane and horror is coming up. And if mm-hmm. you look at some of these licensed comics that, that Bill Mantlo uh, wrote, like this one, um, you're also going to find, you know, Rum Space Knight is, isn't a superhero. It's, it's about killing aliens, basically. Right. Uh, and Micronauts is not about superheroes. So this is the same period where there's a lot of horror comics, but, you know, Howard the Duck has a book so (laughs) people were interested in looking at the shared universe the marvel universe in this case but let's not do superheroes but let's do action adventure strangeness Uh, that was still what comics were doing and that's what people were you know tapping into rather than so the human fly kind of fits that mold where he's not he's not quite a superhero and since superheroes aren't so popular right now that that helps him out you know, that makes them different. And that's what I think readers were looking for in that decade. Right. Yeah. And we'll talk about it a little later, but it delights me to no end that the letters page is filled with people who just like love this character. Yeah. And you know, it's it, I can see that. I mean, obviously I can see the appeal. And, and hopefully all those letters are real. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I've seen too many, I've heard too many stories of, you know, like, uh, uh, staffers writing letters or sure. friends of staffers or staffers writing letters on behalf of their spouses and you know <laughs> that kind of stuff uh, I think Martin Gray was telling me that he wrote some letters for you know when he was ed- editing those British mm-hmm. comics I think he wrote some fake letters 
I, oh. I don't want to throw Martin under the bus. Maybe it's not him, but you know, there's like that happens in the industry. Uh, right. So um, especially like early issues when they're just trying to get traction on something. Hopefully, right. these are all real people. <laughs> we'll 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 choose to believe that they are, and it's not of just course. Mantlo burning the midnight oil. <laughs> yeah. yeah, imagine this is a hero that is real, but <laughs> his fans are not <laughs> somehow. <laughs> You know, well, you said that you were a little familiar with him already. He is a Canadian superhero who was on Canadian TV more than once. Did you ever see any of that? Is, did that help you um, become exposed to the human fly or or was that just happen sense? No, no. Again, I was seven or eight mm-hmm. uh, during this era for him. I've looked at some of that tape from that's on YouTube, you know, but um, but in, in real life, that would have been on English TV probably mm. local stations like Toronto or I know he did one like in Halifax or whatever, but I would not have been exposed to that at that age when I was, you know, uh, only a French speaker. So, Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I know for me, probably around that same time, I don't remember seeing him, but apparently he was on the TV show. That's incredible. Uh, which I did watch religiously. <laughs> so. I, 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 I've, I've seen that show, but um, I was watching it probably when I was kind of starting to learn English. So I'm already nine or 10 or 11 or something when I'm, I'm seeing it. I don't know how long it lasted, but mm-hmm. that would have been like earlier episodes than what I might've caught. Right, right. Let's go ahead and get into uh, the story we're here to talk about. Uh, again, that is Fire in the Night, written by Bill Mantlo. With, we have art by Frank Robbins. And I am going to go ahead and let you take care of that summary. Sure, Fire in the Night. Uh, burning towers somewhere in Quebec, Canada. There are, they are the tallest uh, in the world, and they are on fire. On an approaching helicopter, Rick Rojad, the human fly, surveys the situation. It had all started earlier that day when a group of disabled and or hospitalized children are witness to an amazing stunt from one of the tower's rooftops. The human fly proceeds to walk a tightrope to the other tower when a man dressed as a policeman fires his gun at said wire and sends the fly to his death. But Rojad grabs it, the wire that is, and swings himself over to the other building. At his point of origin, the fake cop holds the kids and the fly is always shadowing news crew hostage, 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 hostage. In a single move, the villain rips his uniform off and reveals himself to be, well, he's not telling, but he's dressed as a circus strongman and he's set uh, five floors of the building on fire. The human fly has no choice. He must climb the face of the burning building and try to stop this madman and rescue the hostages. Hostages who act as audience for the villain's story. He is Malik, a once famous daredevil like the human fly, who tried to walk a tightrope between the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building. His rope snapped and he found himself in the hospital. But alas, he didn't make the news seeing as Pearl Harbor got bombed the same day. So now he wants to publicly humiliate other daredevils and deny them the glory that was denied him. Meanwhile, the human fly has climbed up to the floor where the fire begins. He crashes through the window and continues his ascent from inside, equipped with a fire extinguisher and a breathing apparatus. When he gets to the roof, Malik recognizes his voice. Ah, clue. And goes to shoot him. But one of the kids hits his arm with a crutch, ruining his aim while the fly knocks him out with his baton thing or whatever you call it scepter Uh, his team's helicopter throws him a chain link ladder that stretches from one tower to the other 
It's their only way out. Rojat fires a line to the other building to help people with the crossing, and reporter Harmony has to help bring some kids over. That still leaves a girl who uses a wheelchair and the unconscious cameraman Malik had hurt. Malik wakes up and comes to his senses and offers to help bring the two to safety. As the fly puts the cameraman over his shoulder, Malik takes the little girl and, to take her mind off the danger, tells her he taught the human fly his mastery of aerialism. But before they can make it all the way back, the metal ladder melts and snaps. Malik crashes through a window, protecting the girl with his body. She's fine. Malik surrenders to the police and promises he'll keep the human fly's identity a secret, telling him to keep giving people hope. It's worth more than the glory. Okay. What did you think of this story? It's a very simple one, but, uh, you know, it's like there's a stunt and then there's dueling uh, daredevils, basically. But I, I like that this is the fifth issue and it's the first time that the human fly does the human fly thing, which is right. climb a building. Right. <laughs> so I'm happy to have gotten that. And, uh, and of course, I, I, I suppose you chose me because it takes place in Canada. Possibly. Possibly, <laughs> and I'm sure we can talk about that and where what what those towers actually are. And right. uh, I did some research there because uh, uh, it's it's kind of my thing, you know. I got a <laughs> got a front for the country, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, obviously, it's a it's 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 a kind of a tale of revenge, but it's like the other stories where the human fly is a very inspiring figure, and that's maybe his true superpower mm-hmm. is his ins- the, the way he inspires people. So he inspires the kids and the kids fight back and everybody gets, you know, everybody gets to play daredevil because they go, they all have to go through that on that ladder. So everybody right. does a stunt basically. And, uh, and then he also inspires his old mentor who has gone bad to go back good and to surrender himself and to accept responsibility for what he did. It, it fits the theme of what the other stories that we've seen today. Yeah. He is the inspiration for, for Malik's um, redemption in the end there. And he willingly goes, says, I'm going to pay, I'll face my consequences, but I'll keep your secret. That's the first time that we get a little bit of a hint that the fly had a life before becoming the human fly, but also that apparent, well, hold on, wait a minute. Now I'm thinking about this. No, this is probably his Batman training with Rajal Ghul's <laughs> period. Yeah. But apparently this was before he chose the human fly identity, before he was masked, and before he uh, forego his own identity. So Malik knows who he is, but he promises to keep that a secret. And I kind of, and I haven't really come up with an answer for it myself, but I kind of wonder why the secret identity is so important. Well, I mean, it, it's part of the shtick in real life. So Mantlo had to to stick to that. Well, sure. Uh, whatever the real reason is, you know, <laughs> uh, it, it's a little bit of a masked man. Uh, you know, he. I've watched a couple of videos of, of interviews and, you know, he's he's basically uh, challenging evil can evil who he doesn't want to name. You know, <laughs> well, I don't want to try. He, he really a, he really has a thing against evil can evil. He's Steven Seagal in those interviews because Steven Seagal <laughs> does the same thing where he's got, it's like other people say, well, are you, uh, you know, what, what do you think of Jean-Claude Van Damme? It's like, like, I don't want to talk about the other guys. Right. And because I don't think they're real martial artists, you know, <laughs> he has those interviews. <laughs> so it's a little bit like that. That's, that's how I felt it was. Uh, and then, he, you know, in, in the interview I did watch, he had like his agent next to him or whatever, his partner or whatever, who is, is, is more about 
you know, giving the dates and, and but they're, mm-hmm. they're talking about like their whole, they're a team, they're a stunt team. Right. Uh, he's not doing this alone. So, so, so I, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, there are some things that are part of the license. He's got to kind of look that way. You know, he's got to kind of have that costume. He's got to be, uh, he's got to have that origin story. He's got to be uh, a stunt man or a daredevil mm-hmm. or call it what you will. And he's, you know, he's got to be masked and he has to protect that identity. Right. So the comic was sort of stuck with that. Right. I think Manlo actually kind of, uh, I think Manlo was able to work with that because in a way he becomes an everyman that way, you know, as by becoming a cipher, by being in a sense, nobody in particular, he can be whatever anyone needs him to be. And I think that kind of works in story because as you said, this is kind of, you know, he just kind of stumbles into these situations and becomes involved. He doesn't just, you know, take it. <laughs> I guess he could easily take his mask off if you wanted and just say, well, you know, this, this looks like a hell of a thing. I'm not going to get involved, but he does. And I like the mystery, but you know, as we've, as we've discussed in other episodes too, I don't know how long this could have been maintained. I'll play devil's advocate because obviously other people have attempted this, you know, Shadowhawk is that the name of it? Like image mm-hmm. comics. Uh, and they eventually, they played it as a mystery with possible people in the cast could be Shadowhawk. And then eventually they revealed who, who the person was. And that was like, that was planned. You know, there was, there was a planned uh, reveal eventually, but think of a lot of Batman stories. Now we all know the origin of Batman. And there are so many Batman comics. And yes, it's a lot easier for a writer to create a supporting cast and to have all these soap opera elements. And um, but are they needed? And a lot of Batman stories don't have any of that. He's in costume from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. Um, He may have helpers on the phone or, you know, Alfred or Oracle or something, just like there are people surrounding the human fly. But we don't go back to the mansion. We don't have any subplots with whoever love interests or business concerns or Batman at this point, he doesn't need the other identity. You know, they've done a lot of stories where you just never go back to Bruce Wayne. And imagine if that's all you read, that you never read any Bruce Wayne stories, only Batman stories. Mm -hmm. Do those comics not work? No, they still work. So similarly, I think you could do the human fly for, more than 19 issues uh, and never reveal who he is. But if you, so long as you don't tease the, you know, the identity as it's like if somebody in the cast was the human fly, like sometimes we see Joe blow or whatever, and that's the real guy, but we don't know. And they play it like, Oh, is this the guy? Is this Mm -hmm. the person? But they don't do that. At least not this, like not this issue for sure. Mm -hmm. So I think if it's not a concern, if the mystery is not actually concerned, then just enjoy these adventures of a super stuntman. You know, and I think that's a really good point because they never make the fact that his identity is secret that big a deal. Every now and then people are like, oh, you know, I saw him without his mask or, oh, I think I know who that is from my own past. But that's as far as it goes. And Manlo did a really smart thing in basically kind of mostly ignoring it, <laughs> you know, it's this big mystery, but no one seems to be in a rush to solve it. It's, it's really just more about the adventure. Yeah. It's part of a shtick that he is not, that he is masked and nobody knows who he is. 
Mm-hmm. That's it. That's just a another characteristic. The there's no one trying to solve it. Right. Right. So, and it's true in real life as well. I mean, in real life, we don't know who he was. So, is the world lesser for that? No. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you'd love to read that. You'd, you'd love to read read a, a tell all. You know, the, oh, the sure. true history. But um, the fact that we don't have that, it's like it's, it, the the fewer details you give a character, in a way, the more iconic mm-hmm. that character can become, or you know, more the more symbolic they can become. And with superheroes, there is. You know, being iconic is is useful, uh, and I think in this case he represents things. Whether that's hope, um, but all all we've got in the package that's that's all we really need. And I, I mm-hmm. you know, I don't care if there's no Rick character running around maskless, right? And you know, and it's interesting that you mentioned that too because everything that I've read, everyone, everything kind of points toward um, you know a, a man named Rick Rojat. Uh, as the person who played the human fly, but also there's uh, plenty of people saying, well, there was more than one human fly because, you know, it was, it was the way there used to be a, Ron, a local Ronald McDonald everywhere. You know, <laughs> they, they had different people playing the fly in different circumstances. Who might have different skills for right. particular exactly. stunts. Yeah, sure. exactly. And so, you know, would I love to talk to someone who actually wore the costume and, you know, ran around as a human fly for even an afternoon? I would love that, of course. Obviously. But at the same time, part of what's fun for me about this character and the series in general, the, the whole, <laughs> the whole uh, weirdo 70s mystery around it, is that I don't know. And I don't know if that's something from growing up in the 70s also, you know, because like if there's a, if there's a Bigfoot out there, I don't want to, you know, I like the idea that there is, but I, I don't need proof. And the human fly is sort of my Bigfoot. I, it's good enough for me to know that there was some guy out there who showed up like he was halfway into a six pack of beer, angrily talking about evil Knievel. And that's, that's all, that's all I need. That's all I need. And in the comics, I, 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 I enjoy the purity of this character. He, he is just a guy doing the best he can while trying to raise money for charity. You know, and in a way I kind of agree with the, I can, I can see Harmony White's character and her motivation in saying this guy is too good to be true. If I saw that in my real life, I would probably think the same thing too. About every superhero, probably. <laughs> right. You, you know, because that's not a, uh, like in the real world, that motivation seems to be lacking. But in this case, well, you know, I mean, it, it, it's the Marvel Universe as well. It, <laughs> right he's not the only one he's not the only selfless person out there uh but this but also he's an entertainer so it's not quite giving your life to like that vocation of crime fighting he's in it for well we see his mentor or one of his mentors here was in it for the glory for the fame right and that failed him uh and the human the human i was going to say torch the human fly (laughs) Is, is not in it for that. Mm-hmm. So obviously it's part of the job, you know, but he's right. actually got a different motivation for it. Right, exactly. You know, and speaking of um, of his mentor and slash nemesis in this issue, uh, Malik, I did a little a little research and I don't know how many people remember the flying Walendas, but they've been, they were around since the 30s. But uh, they were still, you know, pretty popular around this time and they're still doing stunts and that sort of thing. And so I 
kind of arbitrarily decided that uh, Malik is based on the family leader, Carl Walenda, who actually died, I think, a couple of months before this issue came out, actually. But at the time, he was 73 years old. And which kind of lines up because Malik says that he, you know, he was <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he during the war. He lost, yeah. yeah, he lost his glory to that damn Pearl Harbor. You know, this this guy who, quite frankly, like everyone else in this, and I love Frank Robbins, so this is not a, a dig necessarily, but everyone's built like a like a He-Man action figure. He's a, he's a good looking 73. He looks like, uh, to me, he looked like John Aston as Gomez Adams, <laughs> but with 70s hair. Um, or I get, yeah. yeah, I guess they couldn't get Craven the Hunter or something. But <laughs> I, I love that. I love that when he shows up, he's like, they'll wonder who I am. Ha ha ha. It's a weird power move. Uh, <laughs> like, you, I want to be known, and yet they'll wonder forever who I am. Because I guess he expects to burn to death on the top of the, that building, you know. It's his so, last... Yeah hurrah sort of thing yeah you mentioned the art by frank robbins um i uh this is an artist like jack kirby whose work is really like full of energy but it seemed too stylized when i was a kid Mm -hmm. i remember seeing his work on invaders possibly uh in the previously mentioned friends collection don't even ask me who that person was (laughs) like i have a vague memory (laughs) of a sleepover and there were some random comics there and i flipped through them and there was like frank robbins i remember invaders for sure and i might remember a cover from this so um i couldn't really read english very well maybe or i wasn't i don't know but it's before i started collecting comics in in earnest uh anyway big reappraisal of robin's art once i entered middle age i gotta say Mm -hmm. so what did you think of it in this issue well um no it's good i mean it's it's perfectly one of the things he does i feel is um like there's nobody that that draws characters ragdolling the way that Frank Robbins does. <laughs> that is true. People are very, very, uh, you know, like limbs are disjointed. And <laughs> yeah. uh, sometimes it's a matter of perspective. It's just where we are. But if, if somebody's flying through the air, uh, they're probably got like a leg that's, uh, that's about to snap off. You know, <laughs> it's very Frank Robbins. That, that creeped me out as a kid. And also like the beady eyes. He's one of those artists who does like little round eyes that, sort of creepy in a way but some of the stuff i like here uh like the action is good i like the sh- the short flashback in the early pages where he puts the fly's head in the corner sort mm-hmm. of in a smoky you know like the panel is is uh has a little curvy line like wavy line around it right. it almost makes it look like he's got like psionic powers <laughs> like page seven that head is looking at the action and there's right. like a, a screaming, the human fly, as he, <laughs> as he, you know, touches down on the roof, uh, in in a pose. But it just looks like psionic energy. Yeah, exactly. And on that same page, actually, the panel before that is one of those ragdoll yeah. positions that you're, because <laughs> yeah, he, he looks like the human fly looks like he should be in pain. The back leg is <laughs> just extremely, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, it's it's much too far in the back, but. <laughs> Yeah, but, that's, but, a, that's a grain pool for sure oh you no know, he's got a hernia there but when <laughs> but that's exactly what i mean it's like the energy of that it's not about how it's just like jack kirby it's not how people actually move or you know it's but it's it's a comic book and you've got to the art has to show the effort and i think that's what he does like that swing as he falls to his death he swings back up 
<laughs> to the top of a building, which is supposedly the tallest building in the world. So that's right. that's going to take some effort. That's he's going to ragdoll. <laughs> yeah, you know, and the thing is, is that it it is very well suited to this character and these stories. I mean, this this is a guy whose uh, whole thing is that he, through sheer willpower, almost brought himself back to uh, you know a physical peak. And so, yeah, and you know, you, you kind of want to see him doing, you know, nearly yeah. impossible, anatomically impossible things. The job of a daredevil is one where you're always going to get hurt. Yeah. You know, every stunt is possibly when you're last. And so when we see him do stunts here, they're very dangerous. Obviously, somebody sabotages him. Uh, and then, you know, it, 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 it's a pretty dangerous issue uh, in terms of, of stunt work. So we're looking at him and we're thinking, well, maybe he hurt himself there and he's going to have to recuperate between issues, just like the real thing would have recuperated between every stunt because every stunt you get hurt, uh, I'm pretty sure. So um, so that, that fit for me, that, that worked for me as well. And so far, uh, you know, we're only into the fifth issue here, but so far this is my favorite action of the, of the series. And some of that might just be because I personally am afraid of heights. <laughs> you know so the idea of him walking across a high wire and and suction cupping his way up the tallest building and and all that sort of thing i think just kind of hits me in a place where my brain goes no 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 <laughs> you know? well i mean this is a stunt based on a, a real one uh it's based on the 1974 walk across the uh the, the world trade center towers mm -hmm. by uh french aerialist Philippe Petit. Uh, so he, uh, he was, I mean, that's a stunt that was immortalized in a documentary, Man on Wire. Uh, there was a feature film mm -hmm. called The Walk. When you watch, and, and The Walk was 3D, but I, I saw 2D and still <laughs> the, the depth, like when the guy is walking the wire. Yeah. I also, I get vertigo just watching that. So, um, and I wasn't like not in theaters on my TV getting vertigo. <laughs> wow. So, So yeah, I, I completely agree. So th that's what they're doing there. There's also like a touch of Towering Inferno, which also mm -hmm. came out in 74. So uh, I don't, yeah, there's like a 1974 vibe here. But, <laughs> uh, but that stunt, yeah, that's obviously uh, Mantlo going, okay, what's, what stunts exist out there and how can I adapt them to the, uh, the superhero genre? Mm -hmm. And I think he does it very well. I mean, this is an incredible idea, but not implausible. I guess, <laughs> no, not completely implausible. No, no, th this was done, mm -hmm. you know? Right. Uh, and I think it was a back and forth as well. Petit went to one tower and then came back. Mm -hmm. uh, and he sat there in the middle for a while, just, <laughs> just to enjoy being up there. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, see, like, just, just the idea is me going, no, no. Yeah, no, no, these guys are insane. So, uh, so that, my big question was, was really, Where are these towers? What are these towers? Where are we? Because mm -hmm. saying Quebec, Canada means nothing. Uh, mm -hmm. Quebec is a province, which includes many cities. Is it Quebec City? In which case, uh, you would have said Quebec City, Quebec, then Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, but Quebec City doesn't really have these kind of buildings. So it really has to be Montreal. Uh, Rick Rojet has claimed that he's from Montreal or you know right. that area. Uh, so it would have made sense. People kind of called him Monsieur or Mon Ami or some things. So as to say, there's a French element, obviously, because we were in Quebec. Uh, but nobody is translated from the French or anything. Mm -hmm. 
so everybody seems to speak in English, which fits Montreal better than Quebec City. It has oh, a, like okay. a larger English population, a large Jewish population which is English, uh, a lot of immigrant populations who speak English first. So Montreal has a better chance of speaking to him in English, basically. Um, but then, so, so I started researching buildings. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, well, tower, you know, twin towers. Like these right. are two towers. Where could they be? Uh, so, and they have a very unique uh, architecture. And that's what doesn't exist. That's what oh. I, I cannot find these exact buildings or anything because there are some high-priced condos in Montreal that are called towers. Uh, but they are a little bit more Art Deco. Uh, they don't have that curve. They're certainly not the world's two tallest buildings at any point. And I don't even think they were there in 1977. I think those are newer buildings. Mm -hmm. The tallest buildings in Montreal in the 70s uh, were what is now the Desjardins Complex, which has three towers and doesn't look like this at all. They're more like boxy. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were completed in 1976, which might have been... You know, like if it's in the news or if, if if there's any kind of research, we understand this is all before, you know, before the Internet. Research wasn't so easy. You you kind of fiddled with it. You know, you had to write a number of monthly comics and that's right. what it is. But the idea kind of might come from that. Probably what they're going for, but maybe confounded with the CN Tower in Toronto, which was the tallest structure in the world. Uh and was, was also built in 1976. Oh, okay. So, okay. You know, but you, you can't be on the roof, of the CN tower, <laughs> because it's the tallest, but it's a big needle, you know, mm -hmm. so you have to be on the tip of the needle to, to actually say you're at the highest point. Right. Um, it's an antenna of some sort, right? Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, it was like many radio towers across mm -hmm. the world. And, uh, and it stayed the tallest structures till 2007. So it's so, okay. So maybe it's all a kind of that and then in a sort of uh, mythical Canada, <laughs> you know, an idea <laughs> right. of Canada, which isn't too far from the generic Canada that Mantle would be writing when he picked up Alpha Flight from John mm. Byrne. Uh, I've, I've dissected a number of those issues for, uh, for my blogging purposes. And um, uh, whether it's the art or the writing, it's like this is very generic Canada. It doesn't line up with the real thing you know mm -hmm. very often it's an idea of canada but to well, be see, now the... everything i know about canada is wrong <laughs> yeah probably <laughs> yeah if, if alpha flight was the uh was the information but here we're talking for for like the the desjardins complex it's like 40 floors and that's the highest that was the highest building at the time mm -hmm. you know um and here he says this it's a little bit higher than the world trade center and the world trade center is 110 uh stories mm -hmm. and uh here he gets up to 135 and then he has like to make a jump because there's fire right so maybe it's 140 uh that does not exist <laughs> those towers <laughs> do not exist so what's interesting i mentioned the cn tower but uh on the interview on the cbc that i watched the human fly on he does mention taking a dive off the cn tower as one of his planned, his planned stunts. stunts right yeah Uh, along with attaching himself to a missile to cross the Atlantic. So whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah, the, the, yeah he, want, he wanted to go across the English Channel on a rocket. Yeah, however any grains of salt you need <laughs> to, to swallow this, <laughs> go ahead. Uh, but, but as far as is this a real location in Quebec anywhere, I don't think it is. So maybe somebody's got a, you know, 
maybe somebody lives there and said, well, no, no, it's those, those things on the Island somewhere. Or something. I, I don't know, but <laughs> I could not find it among a list of tallest buildings in Quebec. And I've, I've lived in Montreal very briefly, you know, uh, when my dad was, when my, when my dad, um, uh, got divorced and uh, met with bankruptcy. The bankruptcy doesn't want anyone to know. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nobody knows who my dad is. But uh, he lived in Montreal for about a year or something. Uh, you know, like like stitching up wrestlers. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, and then so we would go, you know, you basically spend the summer. It was a divorce thing. So you spent the summer there or like uh, spring break. And I remember spring break when I was 10, this was when it happened. And uh, I spent a week in Montreal and it was like the most stunt heavy week for me or something. Yeah. I'm 10 years old. It's the first time I ever tried cognac because my dad wanted to ply <laughs> us with booze. Okay, this is, this is already a good story. Um, there, uh, it's the first time I ever drove a car. He made me park a car in Montreal. Wow. I was 10 again. I, I, I still don't have my license. I, I feel like... <laughs> I stopped driving when I hit 16 is basically what happened. You know, mm -hmm. all my driving was sort of a, well, make you love driving. Cause I love driving. I'm mm -hmm. sorry. I mm -hmm. made me hate driving. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I yeah, still you can see driving. that. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I was, I was uh, doing some homework before going back and uh, it's like late night for a kid. Anyway, it was, it was dark. And while doing the homework, I was eating uh, pecans so I was opening them up with a pair of scissors because we're living in a cramped apartment that's not made for the extra three kids and the bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is like it's, it's a downsized. There aren't any nutcrackers or anything. So I'm so I'm just trying to pierce these pecans with a pair of scissors. And it goes and they're so slippery. You mm -hmm. know, a pecan is so slippery. So it goes right through my like the pair of scissors slides slides off and goes right through my hand. I still have oh, the scar. You almost wow. see it go out the other end. So, uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, that's not good. That was my week in, in Montreal as a kid where I could say my address was Montreal. Yeah. Uh, I've since just been like my sister lives in Montreal and I have a lot of friends in Montreal. Obviously it's, it's kind of the New York for French speaking Canadians. It's like where you want to go when you grow up, what's mm. the big city? Montreal is the big city. Um, I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't particularly like it. You know, it's like, I've have many, I have some good experiences, but I have many experiences that kind of sound like this. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> this is bloody. Oh, no. Um, yeah, no, I mean, you, you, <laughs> yeah, no, Montreal made you spill blood. That's not, that's not good. Uh, so I, I was a human fly <laughs> doing things <laughs> I shouldn't have been doing. Oh no. Yeah. You, you had mentioned before that you had beef with Montreal and I can see why now. Oh, my beef is actually with like, you know, altercations and parking lots and <laughs> stuff like that. It's it's more about uh, having met the wrong people in certain locations or something and uh, being very crabby about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, because the, the, the Quebecer spirit, the Quebecer spirit is very, very uh, confrontational. Oh, so, okay. you know, some people will say this about like Parisians or, you know, like the mm -hmm. French, the French are rude. Uh, probably just Parisians are rude. <laughs> you know, it's like the, the big city <laughs> makes you ruder. And, uh, yeah. and Montreal kind of has that chip on its shoulder where the people are or can be very rude. And the, the Quebecers in general, because they, they kind of feel bitter about being part of Canada, 
so they, they they see themselves as this uh french population under siege they don't know <laughs> wow. they don't even know yeah. what that means because i live in a <laughs> an actual you know like <laughs> we're we're a, we're a french minority in an anglo dominated world right but in quebec you can walk down the street and say hi to someone in french and and you know that these they'll speak your language basically you know right. you're not under fire at all but <laughs> <laughs> they don't know what it, being a minority is mm-hmm. so um so it's just part of my beef you know but, but but yeah so they they you know they, they have that that kind of mentality where they're very aggressive and very confrontational um they all feel like they are separatists you know they're yeah. all it's not it's not the truth but yeah. it kind yeah. of feels like that because you'll always have the most outspoken people will be the ones you notice Right. And those people will be jerks, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and uh, because we have like the largest here in Moncton, we have the largest uh, French speaking university uh, or fully French university outside of Quebec. Well, when Quebecers can't get into their own universities, they come slumming down here. <laughs> and then so you get a lot of Quebecers. And I was born in Quebec. It's not like, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, wow. uh, but they'll be you know, those loud mouths will be the ones that are going to say, oh, it's. You know, it's crap here in Acadia. It's, you know, they'll be judging our mm. culture adversely. It's like, well, just stay home then, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. If you don't like it here. That's that's fine. I don't like you being here. <laughs> it's kind of a mutual thing. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of easy to hate on Quebecers when you're in my area because of their attitude towards the rest of Canada which we are part of. So yeah. um, that's, that explains it. You know, it's more than, it's not about, you know, putting a pair of scissors through my hand or anything. <laughs> that's, that's only a, a physical reminder, I guess. Yeah. Well, the mark so of the beast. You've watched the, the video of, of the real life human fly. Mm-hmm. So does he give you a, a Quebecer vibe? No. Well, I mean, he's, he's an English speaking person. So uh, it makes sense. He's from Montreal. Mm-hmm. If, if that's all true, you know, obviously we don't, we don't know that the, all the details are true, but he's an English speaking Quebecer probably makes him from Montreal. Uh, that, that would see, if he's from Quebec, that's that tracks, you know, it's kind of, it's not the only place that might happen, but it's the most likely place mm-hmm. and where he could have lived his English language and culture uh, without let's say contamination, you know, without being forced to speak French or go to French schools, or he could have lived his Anglosity completely. And so he sounds like an English speaking person or an English speaking Canadian. You know, Mm -hmm. he could have come from Toronto. He could have come from Vancouver, you know, anywhere. So, so I can't, I, I, I don't think that if you're an English speaking Quebecer, you have that Quebecer spirit. I, I think that's the Latin blood. That's the French blood mm-hmm. speaking. You know, uh, if, if you're an English speaking person in Quebec, you're you're probably putting on a mask. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there there is like like you are the minority there, and you are not particularly uh, welcome by certain you know sectors or cities. Mm-hmm. So the idea of the masked man m- might come from that. I mean, psychologically, that's not, I I don't know about pink rhinestones or whatever, but (laughs) yeah, it's very glittery in real life. It it is very, yeah, it's very sparkly. (laughs) Yeah. And he's got like, you know, his posture is very slouchy, 
It is. It really is. He seems thinner than, than you would expect. Obviously, he's, he's no He-Man like in the comics. You know, he's, right. he's like a more a, a thin, maybe even rather short person. So yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to interpret that. It's it's very goofy, but he's very sincere. You know, it's like he's yeah. um, it, he's not playing it for laughs. No, it's, not at all. And the actually, thing. there's a there's a clip where people laugh at him. I, right. think it, I think it's when he says he's going to. Uh, I think it's when he mentions the rocket stunt, possibly, or or well, maybe. Well, at the, the, the start of this interview, uh, where he mentions the CN Tower and all of that, at the mm-hmm. very start, he mm-hmm. mentioned he talks about the accident right. that he had. Oh, that's right. That's and there's right. a laugh, mm-hmm. and the uh, the host of the show has to say, "No, no, this is very real." Yeah, this is this is real and this is serious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and yeah, and the the real life human fly doesn't play off the laughter or anything like that he's he's actually kind of kind of uh angered by it and well uh, i don't blame him i mean yeah <laughs> i had a i had a terrible accident i you know i went to you know i made, i did physical therapy and i built mm-hmm. myself back up and now i'm doing this to in a way raise awareness and uh and then people laugh because the costume is ridiculous right and they think this is this is a comedy bit yeah and he does mention losing his family but yeah, I mean, I can understand why an audience would look at this guy and almost anything he says is going to sound goofy, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it, it does sound kind of like straight out of a comic book. At least the stunt he's doing here mm-hmm. is, is, is possible, you know, it, right. this isn't actually like in the, in the comic. I mean, um, this feels more grounded. Obviously, it's still extreme, but it feels more grounded than, um, you know, robot birds and <laughs> that kind of stuff. so it, it still feels like something that a, a real person might do whereas right. uh i'll say that malik's stunt that went wrong in the 40s does not sound credible mm-hmm. um because walking from empire state building to chrysler building would mean like three thousand feet mm-hmm. of wire <laughs> right it's i'm it's not, not, I'm not sh- no yeah. i'm not sh- i don't think that one works <laughs> so uh uh, so yeah, it went wrong for sure. It went wrong, but but it, it would be I, one hell of a stunt, though. Yeah, well, even going halfway and falling and surviving, he should. He's right. He should have been in the paper, right? <laughs> if not yeah. for that damn war, not for that damn Pearl Harbor. Yeah, <laughs> no, and you know, it's I, I like this issue because, like you said, it's very straightforward. But a lot of stuff kind of happens in this issue. The fly faces a moral dilemma because at one point he has to choose between a, a child and uh, the knocked out cameraman. Who do I save? And that's when Malik steps up. Yeah, uh, they they still make a strange decision. Uh, logically, I mean, like for the story's purposes, it allows Malik to have a little girl in his arms mm-hmm. and to whisper his secret to her, and you know that's it's a good moment. Right. But in reality, Malik just suffered a concussion. <laughs> right. Uh, and he's the villain so um and he he looks so buff as well he could have taken the cameraman and then the fly could have made sure that the little girl was okay you know Uh, it's kind of a big risk i feel and and especially (laughs) they're coming behind and they're the ones that fall because the ladder melts i kind of if i'm the fly i would rather it be me and the adult that i'm trying to save uh yeah so no i can see that yeah it's a dramatic move, but logically, you know, I don't think that's like the best decision. If, <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's made under stress. There's a fire. There's you know, all this stuff. Um, yeah, things are happening. It's, yeah. yeah, it's a very dangerous resolution. 
that's right, happening. Yeah. And and you know, and I like that. Uh, I like the way Matlow keeps bringing in the heat of the fire because you know, not only does the uh, the link vent the link fence, geez, the the link ladder uh melt from the heat but as the fly is climbing up earlier with his suction cups there's a point where he can't go anymore because the suction cups are melting and that's when he has to swing in and he has you know he has to swing into a uh, a window and later on malik can say oh well that you know i'm the one who taught him that and you know and that's another thing that's happening you know it's building a little bit more into the background of who the fly might be it's still very very vague and nothing to go on but it at least gives us something a, a little bit more of a hook for for you know who is the fly it keeps that mystery going a little bit and uh and it's also an issue where harmony starts to uh turn around up a little to him bit. yeah mm-hmm. yeah and you know and that's you know in future issues that's that's gonna you know we'll see more of that but this is the first time we see harmony actually going well maybe this fly guy is not so bad after all yeah i mean he's doing it for the he's doing it for the kids i'm sure this is a bigger story it's just the kids are on the roof mm-hmm. uh, and she sees how he has an effect on them that he, you know, he gives them hope even before they actually take action and, and start, you know, fighting back. They are looking at him and, and knowing that he also had some physical hardships and, uh, and, and look what he's made of himself. Look what he's doing. And so she kind of starts to see, OK, yeah, there is a thing to this. It's not just it's not just the thing he says. It actually is real. It is true. You know, she um, sort of uh, calls a truce at the beginning of this, mm-hmm. you know, for the kids, for the kids. Uh, yeah. But by the end, I mean, she's doing it as well. She's, she's on the, the ladder. She's, uh, she's bringing kids over. Uh, he really, he turns everyone into a, a hero in this. And there's a panel where he actually, they're getting ready to go across the bridge and, you know, Fly tells her, I can't do it alone. I'm going to need your help. And, and he asks her, Harmony, are you with me? And Harmony, this is when Harmony says, yes, Fly, I'm with you. And that is, you know, that is a huge turning point because she has been just poisonous <laughs> toward the fly up until this point. It's like you said, you know, the, the ability to give hope is kind of the fly's superpower. And it's, it's even starting to wear down uh, Harmony's uh, cynicism. Yeah. So I think that's like a really good, uh, this is how you're using your supporting cast. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, without ever unmasking the, the character, there is drama, there is a relationship being built. It's not a relationship where they're going to ever go kissy face because he can never reveal his lips. <laughs> but, right. but, um, but still, you know, there is a relationship there between the reporter and the star and her being very uh, doubtful of of his uh, motivations and then just him proving it over and over through mm-hmm. his actions so uh, i think the message is good it's like it's not about what you say it's about what you do at, at, in the end you know put your money where your mouth is right and that's what the fly does a lot what do you think of this you know the crew and the supporting basically the supporting cast because the past guests have gone back and forth about it you know whether they want to see more or they want to see less and we do see a little bit more in this issue from them. You know, Harmony's there on the roof with the kids. Arnie's on the ground. The helicopter the, crew. Know, yeah. yeah, the you know, I can't, <laughs> I'm embracing myself by not remembering their name right now. But the uh, the rest of the crew are in the helicopter uh, trying to get that, that chain link bridge to to the fly. So there's, there's a lot of moving parts to this. Where do you come down as far as his crew goes? Well, I like the idea that he has... Uh, support staff because you can't do these stunts alone so 
if you're going to do drama, like in the future, I don't know where this is going, but if you're going to do drama in the future and you want to do human stories where you need faces, where you need people that who know other people, you know, basically who they are, then that's where you can bring in the crew. That's where you, that's what the supporting cast is for. You know, they, they, they generate stories and your hero is sort of can be right in the mix or you can be on the outskirts of it, but, and just witnessing it. But if we come to care for these characters or understand they're part of the cast, then you can use them as full characters and have them have their own stories. You know, they're more expendable than the hero as well. So someone can die or someone can leave or uh, so that's the usefulness there. Um, I was talking about Batman earlier where you could do it without any of his supporting cast almost. And that's fine. But it, it always pays off, I think, to have these extra people in the story that are recurring and um so here i mean they take part in the action they're all they're just as much ciphers for me because i'm just reading the one issue basically uh, i'm not necessarily tracking it from mm-hmm. the other ones you know so they, they're just the guy that drives the helicopter the girl that points the <laughs> <laughs> that's what they, they are when i'm looking at them but the fact that they exist and that they could be brought in deeper you know into into stories is a useful device i'm I'm, I'm glad they're, they're there. I, I can't see him just do this stuff alone because then we're going to the lone vigilante portion. Right, we're, right. we're not really in that the, the same territory. A right. stuntman or daredevil or professional entertainer would have a team around him. Just the fact that the one interview that I watched, he was with a, per, a person mm-hmm. you know, on his team. He was not alone in that interview either. So that tells me you know, that's more real, that that feels more real. Yeah, I agree. I think it grounds it a little bit because as you've mentioned, you know, no, no daredevil or stuntman uh, does it alone. And Ted is his engineer. I'm remembering the names now. Blaze is his pilot. Arnie is his publicist. Harmony is this reporter who's been following around, but you know, she's <laughs> at this point, she's almost a part of the crew and they all contribute in some way to the, the fly success. Uh, and the fly in, in character in the, in the stories himself says more than once that he couldn't do these things without the devices that Ted invents or blazes courage in flying somewhere that giant robot condors are flying or, you know, the, this building is on fire. And I kind of like that. I like that there is a humility to the fly because he could very well be strutting around and saying, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I saved these kids and lock this loser away and... <laughs> You know, that sort of thing. But he never does that, which is, I think, another appealing aspect of this character. He is almost too good to be true, but he is the kind of character that I would like to be true. There you go. Do you have a uh, a favorite scene? Well, I think um, just the fact that he climbs a building is a great moment. It feels true to the title, but also the way it's lit. You know, just mm-hmm. when he, he walks to the, he's just equipped himself and he's walking towards the tower that's on fire. Um, there's a helicopter up there. There's like the police lights all over it. Um, there's like a big spotlight in the back of him. That is so well, like that is a great panel on page uh, 14. It really so is. Yeah. All of that scene where he's going up the building and, and it takes its time and mm-hmm. he's got problems getting there and everything uh, is, is probably, and then you get a lot of ragdolling as well. <laughs> so, um, th- that's the part I'm most happy with probably. That, that is a great panel. 
I, I think he's some sort of a police detective or he's uh, with the fire department and he tells the fly, you're just killing yourself, but all the same, good luck to you, Monsieur Fly. And, and the fly just kind of, and he doesn't even respond. He just walks toward this giant burning building and it is drawn so well. It's a very dramatic panel. One of my favorite panels is a, <laughs> a very silly panel. It's uh, the fly shooting his baton to a, a uh, like, I guess a, a little radio tower or something on the to the other building which makes me wonder how long is that line <laughs> in, in that in that baton because it goes all the way around whips around it it has enough to whip around it and then it goes whack <laughs> when it when it attaches on on uh, on page 26 and i like that just because it is pure comics yeah totally um, you know, the, the rappel line, kind of the, the bat line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's unlimited. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even that la- that ladder is, is extremely long. And yes, yeah. uh, they have all the equipment they need, mm-hmm. you know, in case there's an emergency. <laughs> they had that. <laughs> Just in case. They had that. Well, maybe it's part of another stunt or, you know. Well, maybe. Um, so, okay, so it's great. I'm going to ask you the same question that I ask every guest. So now that you've read a little bit about the human fly. Mm. Do you think that this character could work in today's Marvel universe? I, I think the fact that Mr. Miracle's comic right now is kind of like this is telling, you know, it, to me, there, there, there's no bad characters or just bad handling of characters. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, that's what we try to prove in, in one of my shows, the who's editing the, that show mm-hmm. uh, is to prove that there's no bad character. Exactly. You know, there's always something you can do with the, at least with the IP, at least with the name. So the fact that it's kind of adjacent, you know, to, um, to superheroics, it's not exactly a superhero book. Uh, I think that means there's a lot of stories you can tell that aren't told regularly. So yeah, I think the human torch, uh, the human torch again, the, the human fly uh, can uh, could exist in today's world because now we would be looking at all of the celebrity culture stuff, mm-hmm. all the social media stuff. How he'd have cameras on himself, you know, where, to, to, right. to show the the, the stuntman's eye view. And there's there's so much there. We don't ha- really have that many. Like, I don't know. I think a writer today would have to fight the impulse to make a jackass. Mm-hmm. So yeah. let's do human fly, but he's Johnny Knoxville, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, that's one take that I could imagine someone doing today, but that is a cynical take. And that would not be true to what Bill Mantlo wrote, you know, some 45 years ago, almost. Right. So yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's still a take. So I imagine that the human fly could exist today in in some form like when did this come out it came out around the time of the olympic stadium bus jump mm-hmm. basically right um it's mentioned i mean i think it's even mentioned in the letters page mm-hmm. so uh that it hasn't happened yet at time of publication or whatever so then there was a fad you know then there's evil knievel and or uh, making fun of it super dave osborne you know making fun of the stunt work kind of stuff there was a fad but right. today, there, what's the equivalent? You know, there isn't really, um, there's a lot of, you know, backyard hurting yourself and jackassery. <laughs> right. It's got, kind of replaced it, you know, or, or you could say, you know, it's kind of like if you had a comic about a pro wrestler or an MMA fighter or something, you know, it would kind of be in that vein, real person, but with a 
outrageous look and personality and sort of a you know a, a public personality that isn't necessarily the person's own mm-hmm. so yeah. it exists you could use the human fly to to speak to that because it it exists in our culture yeah i mean i think i think attempts have been made uh, you know obviously not uh you know directly descended from the human fly but in that same spirit with a lot of kind of lucha libre characters that have right. you know popped up here and there and it's kind of the same concept i think yeah if you'd be santo or uh the blue devil mm-hmm. uh, blue devil blue, blue, demon. Demon. blue demon blue demon you know so yeah you could be uh you, you, that's sort of the the, the similar you know I, mm-hmm. I i have a blue demon comic here somewhere and it's it's really blue demon shows up at the end uh, I can't read it because I can't read Spanish, but it's uh, it just seems like a soap opera. It's just the people mm-hmm. in the neighborhood, and there, they, obviously there's drama, and there's like a dog that rips a girl's pants off. But <laughs> yeah, that sounds like with that sounds like Mexican comic, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then there's a lot of crying, like really goopy tears. But then Blue Demon shows like that's all I can tell. You know, I yeah. can't read it. So Blue Demon shows up at the end. And uh, I don't know, he gives like advice. He's only there for like three pages. So it kind of feels like, well, he's a real person. He's really in a community and he's, mm-hmm. he's showing up. He's like Mr. T in yeah. those cartoons. Or <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I, a lot of these, you know, the Santo and, and Blue Demon and, and uh, you know, all, everyone, every other Lucha Libre uh, wrestler who's ever gotten a, uh, a comic or anything like that. Or a movie. Yeah. Or a movie. Yeah, they're all very much man of the people kind of ideas you know like you said these are people who are a part of their community who you know they'll know hey Juanito you know they'll know the little kids <laughs> you know down the block and uh yeah and I, I kind of think that the human fly was in that same part of the emotional spectrum I guess you know it was the same kind of vibe the human fly didn't have a neighborhood necessarily he was always going from place to place because he's a traveling performer but he always seems to have time for the people who are working with him, the locals, uh, he signs autographs, he talks, to, you know, it, he is very much a man of the people and not uh, this unknowable superhero. And, and so I, that, that's where the, any similarity with Batman disappears, right, you know? Right. Yeah. You know, you know, he's, he's strumming a guitar in the back of a, of a Winnebago. <laughs> he's not hiding out in a cave somewhere. Right. He wants to be known. So right. that's that's a big difference there, uh, and he wants to make he wants to be known because he wants people to know his story and that to be inspired by that story possibly you know like a lot of people who have gone through hardships and then they go on the talk show circuit or whatever <laughs> you can be very cynical and say oh there there's like a cash payout they're gonna sell their memoirs or whatever but you can also be non cynical and say well that happened because I've seen people you know do tours like talking tours or whatever. Um, because there was a, a tragedy or like someone committed suicide in their families. And then mm-hmm. they're going around the schools and they're talking about that and, um, and trying to inspire uh, kids, you know, not, not to go down that road and by telling their stories. So you could say cynically, well, they're getting paid for that. But anyone I've talked to that has done this kind of work, that's not where they're doing it. They're being paid so that they can actually do it because you got to live. Mm-hmm. but they really want to get their message out there, you know, because they feel that they have something to contribute to the community. So the human fly is really written that way where whatever he's doing, and here we see it, you know, because he brings kids to the party basically. And in kids who are in a situation that he was once in, 
Uh, so it's, it's a little like when Batman does something for an orphanage. That's not for selfish reasons. That is because there is a bond there already. There is a connected story. The hero sees himself in these other these normal people basically the fact that he brings them there and and you know and we'll see in other stories obviously he's he wants to be known he wants but like the story says here it's not for glory it's to pass on a message you know it's about his story and how that can be a teaching moment or something for for other people so that they go oh like this guy overcame that can i overcome my problems um, so that's the way he's written. And I mean, it's pretty been pretty um, consistent mm-hmm. to this point that, you know, he is a hero in, in the sense that he's doing something for a higher purpose, not for just to get, you know, just to get rich and famous. Fantastic. Is there anything else you'd like to say about the human fly or about this issue in particular? Uh, no. I, did you notice there's like a, apparently a celebrity wrote in at the end? No, I didn't see that. Steve O'Brien, air personality at WABC Radio, oh yeah, uh, wrote in a letter. So I, I well, I imagine this is a local celebrity, <laughs> um, you know, like a radio person in New York. But the editor, the you know, editorial says, uh, "Thanks for getting us through those long New York nights." So that person at least recognized the name, whoever whoever's editing, or um, sometimes it was actually the writer responding you know under just not signing Mm -hmm. so who knows in this case but local celebrity reads comics interesting right you know someone in media yeah uh, he even signs his name air personality air personality (laughs) um and gives his address hopefully the radio address um but (laughs) but yeah you don't want to be a a radio jockey and (laughs) give your real address but but still it's it's like this is like nice yeah that means that person might have even talked about it on air, you know, it's um, back in the seventies. That's an interesting thing. You know, today it's kind of cool for uh, certain celebrities to say they do read comics, you know, some celebrities are are like us. They read comics and they play D and D, you know, (laughs) right. And they're outspoken about it. Whereas in the past you might've hidden that hobby, but um, like, this isn't really Nicholas cage or anything. (laughs) um steve o'brien i don't know who you are but but still it's it's a thing yeah we know that he was probably a real person and probably a real person in this case and i I wonder if that person actually read comics regularly or the appeal was that the human fly was in the news Mm -hmm. there's a comic book about a real person a real person we might interview at some point or or was sent the comic as part of a, some sort of marketing thing and and then kept on reading to issue issue five, basically. Right. Uh, because uh, he says, um, the way he, he talks, it's like he's been reading it. If Marvel ever had a hit on his hands, it's the human fly. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. You have anything else that you want to that you want to add? No, I think uh, I think we've gone deep. <laughs> or high <laughs> we've reached the, the summit we've reached the top of the building uh, tell our listeners where they can find you uh well if they like reading which is apparently still a skill um <laughs> cisco's blog of geekery just google that and you'll find out i still write articles every day and of course in the on the fire and water podcast network i have a show every tuesday and uh it may be uh various you know i, I i'm I'm kind of uh, nursing like six or seven shows. There's one every week. 
Cisco, I thank you so much for uh, being on the show and for bringing your Canadian perspective to that. I was hoping for someone to, uh, you know, give us a little background on what's uh, what's going on here and a little bit into the uh, possible personality of the human fly. And, you know, again, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. And thank you to our listeners. The Death Defying Human Flycast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. If you'd like to subscribe or leave a comment for the Human Flycast, you can do that on our website at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. You can also find the Human Flycast on Twitter at humanflycast, and be sure to follow and tag the network with hashtag FWPodcasts. You can also reach me at humanflycast at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network and why wouldn't you, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash FWPodcasts, where you can make a one-time or monthly contribution and unlock various rewards, including getting name-checked on this or any network show of your choice. Support the network and reap the rewards. And remember, the wildest superheroes are real. I'll take a pound of nuts. That's a lot of nuts!